you this morning to open your Bibles to Exodus 33. Exodus 33. We were in Exodus 33 last week, and we were in verses 12 through 14 primarily. Today we're going to be looking at Exodus 33 verses 16 through 18. By the way, if you ever have a chance on your own, I would encourage you to read Exodus 32 and Exodus 33 and Exodus 34. But particularly Exodus 33, because in Exodus 33, we see so much of the heart of Moses. Moses was a type of Christ. As Moses interceded for the children of Israel, as Christ intercedes for his people the church. As, Mo, as Christ is consumed with the glory of God, so was Moses consumed by the glory of God. Moses wanted God exalted, not merely in Israel, nor was it selfish in origin, but Moses wanted God exalted among the nations that his glory would be seen. For several years now, I have taught, I have spoken repeatedly, repeatedly on revival. And I know that maybe some people go, oh man, please don't preach another sermon on revival. But I got good news for you. Today's that day I am going to preach another sermon about revival. But one of the things I want to be able to share with you is the linkage between revival and the glory of God. They're almost synonymous when revival comes, the glory of God is manifested and the glory of God is revealed. When the glory of God comes down, what always happens? What inevitably happens? Revival springs forth, right? And I have been praying personally in my own life over 15 years now that God would send an awakening, God would send a revival to his church and to his people that God would awaken the people to the glory of God, to the splendor of God, that God would reveal his glory among the church, that God would reveal and manifest his power in the church. And of course, when I say in the church, it has to uh, take place in the lives of those who follow Christ. And that's what we're praying for. We're praying for a great revival. And every great revival, by the way, is preceded. I want you to know this. Every great revival is preceded by a small group of men and women who are desirous for this glory. I've made it a little hobby of mine to study past revivals. And it is almost 100% that before God did a great work of revival, before the Great Awakening, before the Second Great Awakening, before the revivals in Scotland and Northern Ireland, before the revivals in America on the D.L. Moody and some of the other great men, it was always preceded by a minority, a very small percentage of the church that has come together and has agreed and has cried out to heaven saying, Father, awaken your people. And it is a miraculous truth. 
I'm very thankful on Wednesday night there's a small group of people that come together here at Calvary to pray for revival. And when we get together to pray, we don't ask for anything. We're not praying for Aunt Tilly who stubbed her toe. We're not praying that we get this job uh, interview goes well and this, that, and the other thing. We come together and we glorify God. We magnify God. We exalt God. And as I tell the people, the only thing we're allowed to ask for is that God would do a work of awakening in us. And if God were to do that work of awakening in us, guess what? It would spread, and therefore a revival would break out. It's very much like a wildfire. We see all the time in the summers the wildfires that break out in the West. Most of them are started by lightning. Lightning hits dry brush. The brush catches fire. And then the next thing you see is hundreds of thousands of acres engulfed by flame. What would happen in the church in this nation? What would happen here at Calvary if God sent the fire from heaven down to us and one or two of us that are dry, that are seeking the Lord for something new, would catch fire of the Holy Ghost? I'll tell you what, there's going to be two reactions. It's pretty simple. Some people are going to catch fire, right? Some, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go upon another brother and another sister and, and they're going to be awakened and others are going to be awakened and we're going to see the glory of God manifested among us. But there's always an opposite reaction too. There are some that would say, no, that's not God. He doesn't work that way. It's not God, you know, we got to do it this way, this way, this way, and it's kind of breaking the convention. Now, I'm not talking about experience, and I'm not talking about emotionalism. That's not what I'm talking about. So let's dismiss that right away. But if you've studied things like the Great Awakening, if you study things like the Protestant Reformation, if you studied some of the things that happened under some of the great preachings of Whitfield and, and, and Jonathan Edwards and, and D.L. Moody and, and some of the other great men, you learn this, that God puts in the heart of the man or woman a desire for God. Last week I preached a sermon and I said the whole premise of the sermon was desiring more of God. Which one of us here today can say, I don't desire more of God. I'm good the way I am. God forbid that there should be anybody here that should say that. But God's heart is that we would desire him, that we would desire more. Do you know that in Christ there's never an end to the increase in Christ? Do you know that? We don't reach a point where all of a sudden we're mature. We got it, right? We're pressing in and God is pouring out more and more and more. And you know what? On that great day when we go to heaven, do you know this? On that great day when we go to heaven, do you know that there's not a maturation process there? In other words, it isn't like you're done now. No, even in heaven, into eternity, into eternity, it's going to be more and more and more of the glory and the knowledge of God. What I love about Moses and what we see here in Exodus 32 is Moses desires the glory of God. 
last week's message, I, left, I, I gave you this quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones speaking of the glory of God, and he said this, and this is how I closed the service last week. I said, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Have you got a zeal for the glory of God? If this is a burden that can come to anybody, why hasn't it come to you? See, this is the question that we have to ask ourselves. The glory of God comes from knowing God, from pressing into God. If your expectation is that I'm going to know the glory of God because I go to church one day a week, get that out of your mindset. It's not going to happen. The glory of God comes from knowing God as we press into God. And we're going to see this in our text today. Now, I'd like to read for you in Exodus 33, verses 16, 17, and 18. Read along with me in the text. And this is Moses speaking. And he's speaking to God. Verse 16, he says, For how then can it be known that I have found favor in thy sight, I and thy people? Is it not by thy going with us, so that we, I and thy people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. Now I want to give you the context of what's going on here so that you understand contextually what the word of God is talking about. In Exodus 32, verses 1 through 4, you don't have to turn there. Moses delays on the mountain. You probably know the story. Moses delays on the mountain. He's delayed. He's engaged with God. God is giving him the Ten Commandments. But something else is happening down at the base camp. What's happening at the base camp? The children of Israel begin to murmur. And they say, what happened to this guy Moses? He's been up in that mountain forever. He's never come down. Maybe he was killed. And they begin to murmur. And they go to Aaron and say, we need a God. We are without a God. We need a God. Give us a God. And so they cause Aaron to fashion a bull, an image, an idol. And they come together and they worship the idol. They say, listen, Israel, this is the God who has led us out of Egypt. Matter of fact, the scripture goes on to say they, went, they rose up to play. By the way, that word plain means that they engaged in immorality, sexual immorality. The implication is they worship God doing sexual things, uh, orgies and some of these other. This is how base they descended. In Exodus 32, verses 7 to 10, while Moses was meeting with God, God sees their sin. And God tells Moses, go down there, straighten them out, leave me alone. I'm angry. I'm going to be here in my wrath, and I'm going to destroy that people. He goes on to say they're an obstinate people. That means they're a hardened people. Their hearts are not toward God. Their hearts are hard in sin. 
and he desires to destroy them. In Exodus 32, 11 through 14, Moses pleads with God and he intercedes for the people. And he gets God to relent from destroying them. In Exodus 32, 15 to 35, God brings judgment down upon those that worship the idol. In Exodus 33, verses 1 through 4, God tells Moses to lead the people to the promised land. Now, this is important. I want you to get this. God tells them, look, I made a promise to you. I will deliver you, and I will take you to the promised land, so I'm going to keep that promise. Go ahead, go and lead the people. But God tells Moses, but my presence shall not go with you. Instead, I'm going to send an angel, and the angel will lead you into the promised land. In Exodus 33, verses 5 to 23, and that's where we are in the text, we see Moses appealing to God, interceding for God to reconsider. And what is he asking them to reconsider? He's asking them this, don't send an angel. Send you, God. You lead us. And God, if you're not going to lead us, then leave us here. Leave us here. Just think about that for a moment. You think about that in, 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 a, in a modern context. If the Lord were to say, well, you know, hey, we're not going to lead your church. My spirit's going to depart, but don't worry. I'm going to send an angel. I think about 99.9% .9 of us would say an angel works. That's good for me. Supernatural power, supernatural ability. Yeah, an angel's cool. I could do that, God. But Moses, what did he want? He desired more of God. He wanted all of God. It could be said about Moses, he wanted God or he wanted nothing. And I think about how true is that of our hearts. Is that the desire of our hearts? Do we want the blessings of God? Or do we want God? Which one is it? So you look at verse 16. Moses says this, For how then can it be known that I have found favor in thy sight, I and thy people? Is it not by thy going with us, so that we, I, and thy people may be distinguished from all the other people that are upon the earth? What does it mean? We need a little bit of a, a, a backup step here. What does it mean? When we talk about the glory of God, what exactly does that mean? Well, theologically, God's glory refers to the consummate beauty and the splendor of God. The all-amazing beauty, splendor of the transcendent God. It's God's supreme significance. And it is the supreme significance and, and splendor that transcends, which means it exceeds more, it is more valuable, it is more reverential, it is more supreme than all of his creation. So you're following me? God has a consummate beauty. That beauty transcends anything that he's ever created. 
Which is why Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, when he sees the temple filled and he sees God, what does he do? He falls on his face. He says, woe is me. I'm a man, I'm a man broken apart. I'm a man consumed. I'm seeing the living God. I'm going to die. Because the glory of God is so brilliant. Now, most scriptural passages, when it speaks of the glory of God, it speaks of the manifested glory some examples for you, just to put this into, into comparison. Some examples. God revealed his glory in creation. In Psalm 19.1, you probably know this. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the earth, his handiwork. God's glory is manifested in heaven. In Isaiah 6.3, as he gets a vision of God in heaven. The prophet writes, and one speaking of the angels, one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God's glory is manifested in Jesus Christ. At his birth, remember the story at his birth in Luke chapter 2, verse 5. It says, and an angel of the Lord, speaking of the revelation to the shepherds, an angel of the Lord stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone right around about them. And it says, and they were so afraid. It was the glory of the Lord. It frightened those shepherds out in the field that night. And the glory of God has been revealed in the church. Ephesians 5, 27 says this, speaking of the church. Paul writes, that he might present himself to the church in all of her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that we should be holy and blameless. Now what we see here of Moses in the text, Moses has a longing, Moses has a passion, Moses has a desire to see the glory of God manifested in the people of Israel. And he has been begging God. He's been begging the Lord. Forgive them, Lord. Forgive them. And beyond that, he's begging them, Lord, let it be you that leads us. You see, he wanted the presence. He wanted the power. He wanted the person of God to lead. And he's begging and he's interceding for the people. And he's coming before God with earnestness. And he makes two requests of God. I want you to see this in verse 16. The first request he makes of God is for the favor of God. Look at verse 16. For how can it be known that I have found favor in thy sight? Now notice that Moses is not asking God to go forward with them merely to gain superiority over the enemy or to advance the promised land without any problems. That's not what he's asking for. Moses, God had told Moses because of Moses' love for the people and for God, God told Moses this, that Moses has found favor in the eyes of God. So what does that mean, found favor? What is the favor of the Lord? Well, the best definition is demonstrated delight oh that's awesome demonstrated delight the favor of the lord probably best can be described that it is tangible evidence that a person has the approval of god man church 
that we would pray, that we would ask, that we would seek the Lord for such favor, that we would desire foremost that God would be glorified in us and through us, that God would delight in us. Now listen, it's conceivable that there may be some of you out there that may be saying that doesn't happen today. Let me tell you something. It indeed does. It indeed does. As a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are blood washed, if you are saved, if you have been redeemed, Paul tells the church at Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.21, I still believe it's probably one of the top three most important verses in the Bible. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Apostle Paul says this, what? He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we, that listen, who's the we in that verse? Is believers, believers, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now that's a positional truth. What do I mean by a positional truth? It's a doctrinal truth. But it goes beyond that. That we as believers as we press into God, as we desire God, as we become obedient to God, that we as believers can find the same favor that Moses found. That God would say, Lewis is my demonstrated delight. That, that Mike has the favor of God because Mike seeks after God. Listen, that's where we as believers should desire to be. That's where we as believers are used by God. When we have become a vessel of honor unto the Lord. Moses, although he was a reluctant servant in the very beginning, we know that story of all the arguments he put up to the Lord. Lord, I'm not a good speaker. I'm not eloquent. I'm not smart. They're going to say, who, did you, who are you to come and tell us to let my people go? But afterwards, he wholeheartedly devotes himself to the Lord, wanting the glory of the Lord to be manifested through himself, wanting the glory of the Lord to be manifested through Israel. The prayer of revival is likewise. Why would Christians pray for revival? I'll make it real simple for you. We pray for revival that the glory of God would visit his church again, that people would see that men and women who are saved do indeed delight themselves in God, and the glory of God is being made manifest in us and through us. That's why we pray for revival. That's why we ask God for more. I want more. And I know that there's more. And I have made it my heart's purpose. I'm only speaking for myself, but I have made it my heart's purpose to pursue that more. As I mentioned previously, there's never an end to the increase in Christ Jesus. Oh, that if God would find favor in us, we would have that intimacy. We would have that favor of the Lord. We would have that desire for the Lord. We would have that passion for the Lord. 
Let me tell you, formalistic, dead orthodoxy does nothing for the church. The enemies of the church are all about. They're out there. There's no shortage of them. And they mock God. And they mock the believer. And they mock righteousness. It is because the church has been stagnant and dead and not people haven't been seeing the real true life of the believer. We are in a situation in this culture and in this nation that we are. If half of the people, if a quarter of the people, if a tenth of the people who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior were truly redeemed of God, do you think we would have a country like we have a country here today? But when one is desirous of the things of God, what happens? Men and women are drawn to Christ. When the glory of God fills your life, men and women are drawn to the glory of Christ. Why? Because they're not drawn to the filth that they see out there. It's because they see a marked contrast in the believer, in the heart that's hungry after God, and they say, that man, that woman, walks with God. Oh, church, that God would be worshipped, that Christ would be exalted, that the gospel would advance, and many would come for Christ. That's why I pray for revival. That's why we should have a burden for the glory of God. And as I quoted Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, have you got a great zeal for the glory of God? Well, guess what? Moses had a great zeal for the glory of God. Moses makes known his intention in verse 16 by stating his desire that God's glory would be manifested. And his desire was, how, why? So that the world would know that we have found favor in your sight. He desires that him and Israel would be a reflection of the glory of God. I've often said this. You've heard me say this time and time again. I just want to see the church be the church. I just want to see the church be the church. Some pray for a revival because we want to see the glory fill the church. Like Moses, I think those of us that are praying for revival, our prayers, O oh Lord, if we are saved, if we are the elect of God, if we have found favor in thy sight, I and thy people in the Lord, then we beg you, be glorified in the church. Be glorified in the church. As we will see, Moses' chief concern is for the glory of God. Church, our primary concern as believers in Jesus Christ is that our God, our King, our Savior, our Lord would be glorified in the church, in our lives, for the whole world to see. That is the reason and motivation to pray for revival. Desire revival. Desire the glory of God. That God's glory would be revealed. There's a second reason Moses asked, and it's also in verse 16. Moses says, is it not by thy going with us so that we, I and thy people, may be distinguished from all of the other people who are upon the face of the earth? Listen, Moses' heart can be easily applied to the church at large today. The church is, after all, is it not 
The church of God. It is the church of God. It is the church of Christ. And we are his people, as Peter says. For God's possession, a peculiar people called out of darkness into his marvelous light. It is the church that is called to declare the excellencies of him. How will the church be distinguished from all of the other people on the face of the, of the earth unless the glory of God fill the church? How many times you hear people say, oh, the church is declining. The major denominations are falling. We hear the rise of the nuns, not affiliated with any kind of religion. Recently, every two years, Ligonier does a study on the state of the church. I just got that study. Oh my goodness, it is terrible. The false doctrines, all the false beliefs that have infiltrated into what we would call today mainstream evangelical churches. People are walking away from the church. People mock the church. There's an attack on, 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 on religious liberties. And let me tell you something. There's an attack on religious liberties, but let's call it what it is. There's an attack primarily upon the Christian church to stifle us, to silence us, to shut us up. And this is not politics, by the way. I'm not preaching politics. But this is truth. Do we not see this every single day in our culture? Brothers and sisters, we need, the need now is for us as believers to seek God for his presence. I want to ask you a question. You don't have to answer it. You don't have to head nod. You don't have to acknowledge it. But it's a question to ask your soul. What's your view of God? I really want you to contemplate this. I'm not being sarcastic, nor am I being facetious. But I want to ask you a question. Is God this spiritual being that floats somewhere up there, that has created all there is, but basically he hovers around and you put up a 911 call in your prayer, oh God, I need this. Then God dispatches the Holy Spirit and says, hey, uh, you know, Bob's got a problem. Will you run down there and take care of Bob? And the Holy Spirit says, sure, Lord, I, I got this. Holy Spirit comes out, what do you need? You tell him what you need. Bob goes, okay, man, consider it done. That God's preoccupation with you is that you would be happy. That God's desire for you is that you would have no problems. That God's desire for you is to keep you healthy, wealthy, and wise. That God's desire for you is that you should not suffer. And that God's desire for you is to just believe in Him Live a good life on earth so that when you die, you don't have to worry about going to hell. I'm going to tell you something. That's probably 90% of people's definition of God. How do I know? You could see it in the affections of 90% of the people. People that are more concerned about the things of the world than they are concerned with God. Now let me ask you another question. Is your definition of God 
One that is transcendent. What do I mean by transcendent? He is able to break all of the natural barriers of the created world. That God is interactive with his children. That God, through the agency of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, that God intercedes on behalf of his people. That God is indeed supernatural in the world today. Simply put, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing. It's one thing to say it, it's another thing to believe it. That God has gifted, that God has equipped the believer with all things pertaining to righteousness in Christ Jesus. That God is sovereign. That God knows the beginning from the end. That God said the paths of the righteous, the steps of the righteous are ordained by God. That means God is sovereign in all of your life and that means God is sovereign in your salvation. In other words, you didn't come to Christ by chance. God summoned you to Christ. He called you to Christ. He drew you to Christ. As the scripture would say, your name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundations of the world. And by the way, I want to add something to that. Your name wasn't written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world because God looked forward into eternity and said, what would he do if he was presented with the gospel? Oh, he accepted? Oh, let me write his name in the Lamb. Because that would put salvation completely on you and not on God. God is is sovereign in salvation because God chose and he wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life. And the truth of the matter is, we have no right to question God why he does and how he does. And I'll tell you another thing. That is ten times more humbling than if I made that choice. You know why? I can't speak for you, but I could speak for me. I was a dirtbag. And I didn't deserve grace. And I didn't deserve the mercy of God. And I didn't deserve to have my name written in the Lamb's book of life. And I don't know why God intercepted my life the way he intercepted my life. But I will tell you this, I am forever grateful that God did indeed intercept my life. And every morning I wake up, I am reminded of how I am not worthy of the grace of God. And so I desire to set my heart to Christ and live my life for Christ to do that which is pleasing because I don't deserve Christ. And here's a newsflash. Neither do you. Is your image of God one that holds tomorrow? If you're perception of God the all-powerful is your perception of God that at times in our life he works according to his will and that many 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 times we can't understand that will but we become subservient to that will we become submissive to that will why because if we're born again we love God 
Many things we can't figure out. We're left with many questions of God. And lastly, is your perception of God one that you just fall at His feet in wonder, in perplexity, in awe, in reverence, and say, God, I may not understand your mind, and I may not understand your will, but this is my life, Lord, and I offer it as a living sacrifice to you. Do what you will. Let me share something with you. Moses' desire in, he, in here, his second reason, is that the people of God would be distinguished from all the other peoples of the church, uh, of the world. The desire of the church, the purpose of the church, is that the people of God, the Christians, the new Israel, right? The people of God would be able to come now and be distinguished from the rest of the world. That's why the world hates Christians. That's why there's so much backlash today. Why? Because we're separate. The true believers in Jesus Christ are indeed separate from the world. And you know what? The world sees it and the world hates it. And they don't love it. There's a, there's a bad problem in the church today. And that problem is that the church seems to be moving in the direction that says the more we become like the world, the more we'll be accepted by the world. Here's the deal. We don't want to be accepted by the world. We want to be accepted by Christ. We want to do those things that are pleasing to Christ. And that was Moses' heart. And so therefore there is a need for us as believers to seek the presence of the transcendent, supernatural, sovereign, almighty, interactive God who loves his children so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life that loved Jesus so much that Jesus said I'll never leave you and forsake you that loved God so much that God says yea though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death you will fear no evil for I am with thee and that the psalmist could say and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forevermore. Our prayers as believers should be, help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of thy name. Let people see the difference in us so that God is glorified. You hear me say this all the time. One of the greatest things where the glory of God is made manifest in salvation is when you meet up with the people that you used to know and you see them after a few years and they go, hey man, how you doing? And you share with them, guess what, I'm a Christian. And they say, come on out, man. Let's, let's have a few drinks. Let's toke a few weed. Let's get together. Come on, let's go. Let's run with the women. Let's do this. Let's do that. And you go, I don't do that anymore. And they say to you, what is wrong with you? And you say, I have been saved. I have been washed clean in the blood of Jesus. I am a follower of Christ. And they go, what's wrong with you? You're crazy. You're nuts. You're one of those religious nut jobs. 
God is glorified in that. God is glorified. I pray that the church and our lives reflect the glory of God. Listen, Peter and John knew that in Acts chapter 4. Remember Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 3, they healed the lame man at the temple gate. Remember, Peter says, silver and gold I have not, but what I give you in the name of Jesus Christ, arise and walk. And the man who was crippled from birth got up and walked away. And rather than the world going, wow, what a miracle, what do they do? How do we know this guy was really crippled? Where are his parents? Bring his parents here. Do all this other different stuff. And they couldn't get satisfactory answers. What did the leadership, the religious leadership do? They called Peter and John. Hey, man, what you, what's going on? How'd you make that guy walk? Remember what Peter preaches? Hey, basically paraphrasing it in Brooklyn East. Hey, it's not me. This was God. I, I don't know what you're talking about, right? This is what God did. Turn over to Acts chapter 4. I want you to see this. Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Notice what Peter says. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to I call your attention to something. Wasn't Peter filled with the Holy Spirit on Pentecost? Do you notice something here? Peter is filled again with the Holy Spirit. What's the point? It's not a one and done. We are indwelt with the Holy Spirit once, but we can be filled with the Holy Spirit multiple times. God gave Peter the anointing right here. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the, Peter, uh, of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you. And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Now, you know who Peter and John were speaking to? I'm really digressing now, but this is important. You know who they're speaking to? They're speaking to the same leaders that crucified Jesus. Did you see what he said? Let it be known to you that this Jesus, what? Whom you crucified. There's the accountability. Whom you crucified. Whom God raised from the dead. He's preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The very thing that they did not want to hear. And he says, in this name, by the word name doesn't mean just to articulate the name. Name means the authority. In this name, this man stands here before. He goes on, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which, we but, uh, when, by which we must be saved. So there's the exclusivity of Christ. It's Christ or nothing, right? 
Verse 13, now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated, untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. I love this verse, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible because I stand with them as an uneducated, untrained man, but they marveled with them as being with Jesus. Moses asked God the question, How will it be known that we have found favor, I and thy people, in thy sight? Peter says, as he proclaims the gospel with boldness, the unbelievers recognize him as a follower of Jesus, and they are marveling. That word means they're astonished with the authority by which these, quote, uneducated, untrained men speak. Church, don't you want that said about you? And when you open your mouth to proclaim the gospel, you open your mouth in the fullness of the Spirit, and that the unbeliever goes, he's speaking God. He's speaking truth. That they're astonished. Look what they go on to do. Look at verse 26 of chapter 4. This is, they release them. They release them. They give them a warning. Don't go back. Hey, we're not, we're not playing with you anymore. Do not speak anymore about this Christ. Matter of fact, Peter says, listen, if it's right to listen to you versus listening to God, you be the judge of that yourself. In other words, you know what Peter's saying? I'm not going to stop. It's not going to happen. Look at verse 26 of chapter 4. This is their prayer. They go back now to the church. They go back to the church. And they're praying. Pick up from verse 27. For truly in the city there was gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats, and grant that thy bondservants may speak thy word with all boldness, while thou dost extend thy hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of thy holy servant Jesus." We don't have time to do this, but Peter quotes from Psalm 2.2. Psalm 2.2 talks about the nations railing against God. And he quotes from them, and he's saying, this is happening right now, right now in Jerusalem, this is happening. Look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit again and began to speak the word of God with all boldness. Listen to this. God shook the whole place. And not only did God shake the building, but God shook the individuals. How do we know? Because it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to preach the word of God with all boldness. 
By the, by the way, there's an amazing term you see in Acts. Whenever you see that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, you will usually see that they began to speak boldly. They began to speak that the Lord filled them. What does God do when God manifests his glory? He grants that thy servants would speak thy word with all boldness. And God is glorified. What do I pray for the church? I pray that God shakes the church. I pray that God shakes us as individuals. That we would be awakened once and for all. God, you are indeed real. You are indeed the Savior. You are my God. You do have the Holy Spirit living within me. And all things are possible because of you and you alone. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, speaking of this text in Acts 4, he writes this, These men had a passion for God. They were in trouble, they were unhappy, because this great God was not being worshipped as he should be. And they prayed God for his own sake, for his glory's sake, to vindicate his name and to arise and scatter his enemies. The enemies of God today speak with such boldness and arrogance. Do we not want to see God arise and vindicate his own name? Do we not want that for us? Listen, I beg you, I beseech you. I implore you, whatever word you want to use. Beg God for more. Is your life glorifying to God now? Do you speak of him? Do you have, as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, do you have a passion for God? There's a lot of things I have a passion for, but none will exceed that, my, my passion for God, that I want to see God glorified. That I want to see God exalted. I want to see the church arise in this wicked and filthy generation. And that the glory of God would be poured out upon us. Man, I went too long. I'm going to skip just one verse. I want you to see verse 18. Of Exodus 33. Please go back there. I promise you. Just give me a few more minutes. Because this message would be incomplete if I don't make this point. So in Exodus 33.16. Moses says, How can it be known that I have found favor in thy sight? I and thy people is it not by thy going with us? So that we and thy people may be distinguished from all the other people on the earth. And I submit to you, church, is it not by God's presence going with us that we would be distinguished from all the peoples on the earth? In verse 17, notice what the Lord says to Moses. 
I will also do this thing which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Oh, glory to God. Could you imagine if God answers our prayer as we beg him for more, and God said, I will indeed do this thing? Why? Because you have found favor in my sight. And upon hearing these words, Moses asks the greatest request of God. Verse 18. Then Moses prayed. Uh, then Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. Show me thy glory, Lord. Moses was faithful. Moses was obedient. Moses interceded for the, on behalf of the people of Israel. Moses spoke to God, it is said, as a man speaketh to his friend. The things that Moses was called to do, he did. But now Moses asked for more. He said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Listen, you might be saved. You may have come to faith in Christ. You may be living a minimalist-like type of Christianity. Do not be content. Don't make an assumption. I beg you, by the mercies of God, cry out like Moses. Cry for more. Father, show me thy glory. Dr. Morton Lloyd-Jones again says, we say our prayers, but have we ever prayed? Do we know anything about this encounter, this meaning? Have we a real burden for the glory of God and the name of the church? Have we this concern for those who are outside? And notice these words. And are we pleading for God for his own namesake because of the, his promises to hear us? And to answer us. Listen, Moses' request in verse 18 is not about personal gain or satisfaction. His whole premise is that God's glory is at stake. And so he prays, I pray thee, show me thy glory. What does God do with Moses' request? God answered his request in verse 15. No, I'm sorry, in verse 19. And it says, and he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. All that goodness means I am going to allow my fairness and my beauty to pass before you. Church, I started out by sharing with you that the glory of the Lord and revival are, are linked. As we desire more of the glory of God, God will indeed bring about revival. He will bring about personal revival, and if it happens, he'll bring about corporate revival. One thing about revival, like all other things of God, it is a grace of God. We can't pump it up, we can't drum it up, we can't manufacture it. It is divine, it is spontaneous, as I like to say. It is that genuine, authentic, spontaneous move of God's Spirit upon an individual or a group of individuals. 
But I can guarantee you one thing. If we're not beseeching God, if we don't have a passion for God, if we're not praying to God, if we're not contemplating God, if we're, if we're just living for the things of this world with the expectation that when I die, I go to heaven, then don't expect more of God. This message today is, is designed for those who would say, Father, I want more. Who will have the boldness to say, Father, show me thy glory. I pray thee, show me thy glory. And it's with the expectation that God will and he will revive his people and he will revive his church and the glory of God will be made manifest 